Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Plant Powered People podcast. I'm Michelle Kane, founder of World of Vegan. And I'm Tony Okamoto, founder of Plant Based on a Budget and Food Sharing Vegan. And we are your hosts. On this show, we talk with plant-powered people from all around the world about various aspects of plant-based living because we want to empower you to learn, explore, and evolve in a kind, sustainable, and today we're talking about a very healthy direction all while eating the most delicious food and having a ton of fun. Today, we're bringing on two of the world's leading dementia and Alzheimer's researchers, Drs. Dean and Aisha Shirzai. Dr. Dean Shirzai is co-director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Program at Loma Linda University. Dean trained in neurology at Georgetown University School of Medicine and completed fellowships in neurodegenerative diseases and dementia at National Institutes of Health and UC San Diego. He holds a PhD in healthcare leadership with a focus on community health from Andrews University. Dr. Aisha is a neurologist and co-director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Program at Loma Linda University, where she leads the lifestyle program for the prevention of neurological diseases. She completed a dual training in preventative medicine and neurology at Loma Linda University and a fellowship in vascular neurology and epidemiology at Columbia University. She's also a trained plant-based culinary artist. These two are absolute superstars in the world. They have so much knowledge to share and they really empower us with how we can take control of our cognitive health long-term and what we can do to prevent and to help support those living with both dementia and Alzheimer's. Before we jump into the show, we want to give a big thank you to our sponsors of this episode, Caraway Home and Organifi. Now, I am a huge sucker for aesthetics. I love things to be nice, beautiful, organized in colors that align. And that's why I am so obsessed with Caraway. That plus they make some of the most high quality cookware and kitchenware that's available today. It's all really thoughtfully produced and healthfully produced. So their pots and pans and bakeware is ceramic coated rather than using something like Teflon or things with lead, cadmium, other toxic materials that make their way into nonstick coatings. Caraways are totally natural, healthy, and they work really well. The food just slides right off them when you're cleaning it afterwards, which is such a win. They also have lots of new products, including their new storage system, which is perfect for spring cleaning. You can check them out at carawayhome.com slash plantpoweredkitchen, where you can take advantage of their limited time offer for our listeners of the show to enjoy 10% off your next purchase. Again, this deal's exclusive for our podcast listeners, and you can find it at carawayhome.com slash plantpoweredkitchen or use the code plantpoweredkitchen at checkout. Caraway, non-toxic cookware made modern. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Organifi. They are known for their smooth and delicious protein powders, which are wildly popular, as well as their line of organic superfood blends that make it easy to get in more plant-powered nutrition, vitamins, antioxidants, and superfoods, even when you're on the go. They have several powdered blends, including a green juice packed with veggies, a red juice packed with dried fruits and superfoods, and other science-backed health blends that all contain less than three grams of sugar per serving. Organifi also takes pride in offering the best tasting superfood products on the market at a price that works out to less than $3 a day, which is something I appreciate. If you want to give them a try, which we highly recommend you do, head over to Organifi.com that is Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash plant power and use the code plant power for 20% off of your entire order. Now on to the episode. Aisha and Dean, thank you so much for coming on to the Plant Powered People podcast. We're excited to chat with you today. It's so wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having us, Tony and Michelle. Where are you calling from today? We are calling from Redondo Beach, California, where we live uh, with our two children and our lovely dog, Hope. That is awesome. Well, um, as I was mentioning before the call, Michelle and I have spent a good amount of time listening to your podcasts, following you on social media, looking through your books, and you two are so highly accomplished and extremely impressive in your careers. And not only that, but 
you're also into some really cool stuff outside. And also I show you're a cook and uh, or a chef. And just there's just so much goodness happening in your direction. And we can't wait to share all of it with our audience today. But first, we want to talk about how you got started down the path of becoming neurologists, because I feel like that is an extremely hard one. And it's not something that I have around me. I have one friend who's a neurologist, but it seems so extreme and hard in hardships. So please share how you got into it. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Uh, I, I think uh, we've... Uh... We fell into it, especially looking backwards, we realized how we got into it, both of us. Uh, it was a path that was subconsciously laid down for us in a way. Uh, we met about 18 years ago um, where we both actually had gone to Afghanistan. We, we, we used to travel, we still do, travel a lot trying to help different communities uh, throughout the world. And Aisha at the time was a medical student and was volunteering with Doctors Without Borders and I had gone back uh, to Afghanistan and some other places through World Bank and 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 other organizations trying to help. And in an uh, in a party in in Afghanistan, uh, the two of us met and we started conversing. And we realized that um, we both had something in common. Both of us had two grandparents each that had suffered from dementia and Parkinson's in her case, and and uh, but dementia. In, in both cases. And it was uh, such a devastating thing um, in our life that subconsciously had pulled us into neuroscience. And uh, that's how we we had actually started. Right before uh, doing uh, this or meeting Aisha, I was actually at NIH doing some really wonky research on stem cells and, uh, you know, a different kind of uh, uh, new trends and uh, research. And um, that conversation was the grounds for us to date for a year and then get married, but also redirect our life towards uh, brain health and lifestyle and everything else. Yeah, we both had the privilege of taking care of our elders in the in the family. So you know, the our household structure was such where we were taught very early on by our parents that you take care of your grandparents, and so. We were privileged to have them around us, even when they were going through the most difficult times of their life, when they were sick and they had memory problems. So both Dean and I essentially grew up seeing that, taking care of people with dementia and, um, you know, looking at all the difficulties that they went through on a day-to-day basis and seeing this evolution of what a person goes through when they have dementia. Both our grandparents were incredibly smart people. They had done so much for the world, for their communities. Uh, They were involved in education and politics, in, um, in healthcare for everyone else. And to see such smart, capable people who raised a family and created that structure slowly and gradually lose parts of themselves where they become a shell of who they used to be and they rely on their children and their grandchildren to say, for example, feed them, to bathe them, to, to, uh, you know, help them change their clothes was devastating. And it was intriguing at the same time, like, how is it even possible for someone to be so capable and so smart and then not be able to do anything for themselves, not even be able to recognize their loved ones or remember their names? So we both grew up with that in our mind. And the pain, you know, of seeing them go through this kind of made ourselves ready to face on this whole world of neuroscience and neurology. We both went into it to actually find a treatment for it. And we had promised each other that we were going to make sure that nobody goes through that pain anymore. That's that's a really beautiful story. And I also like how you say it's a privilege to take mm-hmm. care of your family members because <clears throat> often I hear it more as a burden and I love how you've shifted that. And I think the first time I chatted with you, Aisha, I mentioned how I grew up with my grandparents. <clears throat> they helped yes. raise me. My dad was in the military full time and I lived with both of them while he was deployed for the first 11 years of my life. And I got to witness firsthand what dementia does to someone. And just like you mm-hmm. said, 
it's really, really extremely painful. My grandma used to be the strongest woman. And after my grandpa passed, she had a very hard time coping. It was a combination of my grandpa and my aunt passing in the same few months unexpectedly Mm -hmm. from two different health complications. One was type 2 diabetes, one was heart disease. And and after that, she, she just slowly deteriorated, deteriorated. First, she stopped speaking English and only spoke Spanish. Mm-hmm. And then she stopped speaking, period. And it, it, from there, went downward. And it lasted for five years. And my family tried their best to keep her in her own home. We all took turns helping her changing her. And I was in high school at the time. So I would leave high school and go and care for my grandmother. And I look back at that, not in a place of burden, even though I was only 15, 16 years old, but that she cared for me and loved me. And I got to reciprocate when she needed care and love as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 No, you're absolutely right. It is a privilege. Um, it shapes the person that you and I are, that the three of us actually, Dean uh, took care of his grandmother. As a matter of fact, you know, he says that he even shared his bedroom with his grandmother during some of the difficult times when she was having some anxiety and panic attacks and um, during the later stages. So you're absolutely right. As painful as it is, it definitely has you know, made us purpose-driven people because once you see suffering and pain like that, um, you uh, you see things differently in life. Uh, the privilege of being in a position to make a difference, whether it's mm-hmm. uh, to the loved ones around you, to the greater population, to to the planet, to you know whatever that denominator that you choose that moment. That's an incredible privilege. I mean, people <clears throat> who talk about games, video games, I'm like, you know, this privilege is actually a, a gamification of life. Um, it's uh, such a um, uh, incredibly empowering thing. So, yeah, um, thanks for uh, kind of we kind of connected with you there. We realize, I mean, this is this is a journey that a lot of people are taking right now in U.S. alone. Six point two million people, actually six point three now people are suffering from Alzheimer's alone. And that's not all dementias, just Alzheimer's. And that number is growing. For those <clears throat> for those listening who don't know what dementia is or Alzheimer's, can you please explain what they are and the difference between the two and if you can ever have both? Yeah. So uh, um, uh, by definition, you have to have both. I mean, the, dementia is the umbrella category. It's the, the, the overarching category. It's like saying cancer, but a type of cancer, yeah, there are different types of cancer. So dementia is the overarching category, and then there are different kinds of dementia. Alzheimer's is the largest category, the, the biggest group, 60 to 70% of all dementias is Alzheimer's, but you have other types as well as including vascular dementia, mixed dementia, frontotemporal lobe dementia, Lewy body dementia, Parkinson's dementia, and on and on. Uh, but uh, but Alzheimer's is the biggest category under, under the umbrella of dementia. And dementia means when you're having cognitive deficits to the extent where you can't do some of your daily activities, not because of physical limitation, because of cognitive and thinking limitations, memory, uh, processing, thinking, all of that. And each of these dementias have different features that are a little more prominent, um, and uh, you know, th- and and the timing of the symptoms also differ. So, for example, with Alzheimer's dementia, the the usual first symptoms are memory problems, short term memory problems being uh, being affected more than long term. So they could, you know, they someone with uh, beginnings of Alzheimer's disease can remember you know, 50 years back, they can remember all of their relatives from the past. They can remember all the stories, but then they can't really remember what they had for breakfast or for lunch, or they don't remember the names of, you know, someone who's a little further away from them, say, for example, a neighbor or someone like that. And then it kind of expands. And then there are other dementias that have movement disorders like tremors or hallucinations and things of that nature that present initially and then memory later. But at the end, almost all of them 
look the same. They all have profound memory and cognitive issues. They have profound physical debilitation because of the disease. And it just kind of, you know, morphs into like a one form at the very end. As it progresses further and further into the diseases. You mentioned a massive number a moment ago of people who are struggling with Alzheimer's. Is there a specific type of community that is more frequently experiencing Alzheimer's? That's a great question because you can approach it several ways. So as soon as we say that it prompts in people's mind genetics uh, versus lifestyle and things of that nature, and both of them are involved, but the genetics component is not as prominent and profound as, as, um, as lifestyle. So the percentage of Alzheimer's that's driven by genetics only or massively driven by genetics, meaning what they call 100% penetrance, meaning that if you have these genes, you're going to get the disease. It's only 3% of Alzheimer's, 3 to 5%. Wow. That's it. Um, now, it doesn't mean that the rest don't have some genetic component, but it's a combination of genes and environment for the rest. And, and, uh, but um, uh, there are diseases that are 100% driven uh, by genes, uh, Huntington's disease. If you have those genes, even in, in childhood, you can see, oh my goodness, they have those repeats, CAG repeats on chromosome four, and they're going to get the disease at age 30 something, and there's nothing we can do about it. But for Alzheimer's, that's 3%. And the rest are a combination. Like I said, APOE4 is the next highest prevalence gene. If you have one gene from one parent, your risk goes up three to four times. If you have two, one from each parent, as much as 12 times. But even in that population, all of them don't develop dementia. In fact, 50% never develop dementia. And why? Now we know. It's the influence of lifestyle. And we, we can get into that. Uh, well, what does APOE4 do and why lifestyle is a factor? And then the rest of the genes, again, same thing. They have to do with inflammation, your body's ability to respond to inflammation, to, to getting rid of waste, all kinds of stuff, all related to environment and lifestyle. So um, that's the main underlying mechanisms, the interplay between genes and environment. That's really, that's really interesting. In this moment, is there a cure or widely accepted medical recommendation to aid in treatment? So there's no cure for dementia as of yet. And I say that with great humility because sometimes it's really easy to just completely shun away that concept, but there's a lot of work that is being done and hopefully we'll find a treatment for it. And by treatment, I mean disease modifying therapies, you know, something that completely gets rid of the the uh, the reason why the disease is there and cure. So we don't have that as of yet. But uh, we have some medications um, that improve symptoms for a short period of time. There are two um, main medications out there that uh, usually neurologists and memory disorder specialists use, but that doesn't really change anything. That just improves symptoms for a percentage of people. It doesn't work on everyone, and obviously it has a lot of side effects. So those are the only things that we have. But as far as treatment is concerned, um, you know, one medication was approved. It was a monoclonal antibody um, and there were so many problems for that medication coming into the market. This happened last year, and there was a lot of controversy around it and tons of side effects, and some people got it, and then FDA re- decided to, you know, not reimburse it. So it's it's not, it's available, but only out of pocket, and then it takes like thousands and thousands of dollars, and th- the efficacy is not there at all. So you know, we can we can safely say that we don't have any treatment right now. There's another one that is being tested right now, um, and it's again, it's a it's an infusion, and the preliminary research has shown that when people use that medication, you know, uh, there's there's less degree of having dementia that there was some improvement in symptoms. So there's some things that are coming in the pipeline. And we're hoping that uh, science can uh, show some progress and some uh, development in the near future. But the incredible thing is, the positive factor is that uh, prevention is definitely uh, in play. <clears throat> when we first start speaking about prevention, <clears throat> it was controversial and, and we get some pushback. And this is about 10 to 12 years ago. Right. And that came from our work in, in Loma Linda, where we actually picked Loma Linda to go there and study 
uh, cognitive decline. I was the director of uh, um, brain health and Alzheimer's prevention program there, looking at populations that were living very healthy. And the prevalence, and we'll talk about these numbers, were amazing numbers. The prevalence was so low. Yet in other populations, um, right next door, the prevalence was very high. And, and the only differ differential was lifestyle. Um, and so prevention is definitely possible. And it's important because if we can even prevent or delay the disease in 50% by five years, that's the greatest cost saving in healthcare in general. Mm -hmm. and, and we know we can do that. And, um, uh, and, and now it's been accepted by many. The only uh, controversy is the numbers. Some people say 40% can be uh, prevented. Some people say 60%. We say if you live optimally and start early enough and in a comprehensive way, you can prevent as much as 90% of dementias, uh, wow. specifically Alzheimer's and, and vascular dementia. But, but um, so aside from treatment, which we're going to wait for, um, prevention is an incredible tool we have that we must spread the message of. Before we talk more about prevention, because I really, really want to chat all about your studies and your books, uh, but as medical professionals who have been doing this for a long time, and not only that, but as people who have been on the other side with loved ones, how do you support people who are currently experiencing Alzheimer's when, when there is no this is the cure, sense of hope to provide to their family members? It's tough as physicians being involved with a disease that is so devastating is tough. Um, we, I think, first and the foremost thing that we do is inform, educate, um, tell them what it, it, it's all about, and just be honest and human and compassionate. Um, there are, um, you know, there are families that have uh, good support structure, and then there, there are ones that don't. And what we do is we always try to um, highlight the importance of having a community and having a stro support structure uh, for this disease. It's not, it's not a personal disease. I think it's like a family disease and a community disease. And most of our work um, in, in our research involves communities. Uh, Dean has actually his PhDs about community-based participatory research, understanding the different aspects of you know, chronic diseases of aging. And a lot of it comes down to support again. Um, so for people who are dealing with such devastating symptoms, um, it's important to kind of educate their family members, them um, improve their environment to the point where if there's no hope for any improvement of symptoms or reversal of symptoms, at least there is some evidence of slowing down the progression of the disease and improving quality of life. There are times when Dean actually steals all the chairs from the clinic room and brings it into his room because there are like five, six, seven family members who come for a patient visit. And, you know, he talks to each and every one of them, understands their perspective, their um, nuance in the bigger picture, their involvement with the patient who is suffering from Alzheimer's disease and giving them, you know, uh, instructions and hope and guidelines to follow to take care of that beautiful individual who's going through the memory problems. Thank you. Um, it, it's critical that we approach our communities, our patients, our families, our everybody in, in a new model of leadership. And the new model of leadership is listening. <clears throat> so often leadership was like Henry V and, and Shakespeare, like oh, people just following one person who makes some big speech and they don't even know why they're following him. And if you look, read that, and like it's the most nonsensical but nonetheless, people follow somebody for without even, no, it's we, as leaders, we must listen and, and act on what we've learned. And, and that's what the uh, clinical care should be. Uh, and most of the time depends on what, what those conversations give you. And it's a tough one. I, I, I not to bring this back, it comes from my conversations with my grandparents uh, and the family that was going through it. Uh, a lot of times people didn't know what to do. For example, one common thing was that my grandfather was a brilliant, brilliant man would come and say, um, you know, where's my father or where's my mother? And, and he was in his eighties and, and of course they were passed away and, and not just repeating that they've passed away. It's as if the person died for them over and over again, redirection, uh, converse, teaching people how to 
interact with their loved one. Giving them the simple tools of interaction is more powerful than any drug yeah, out there. But it takes listening, just pure listening and 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 then acting upon what we've learned. Um, and that's what we have to do with 6.2 million individuals and their families. That's what we have to do as this disease grows to 13 million in the next 20 years. Um, and uh, But uh, at this point, the approach is they come to the clinic, they're diagnosed, they're given some medicine that's only going to help symptomatically, and they're given some brochures and goodbye. Yeah. I, I, it's, uh, it's also very important for um, family members. I mean, this is one thing that we always talk about, Tony, is, you know, the person is an ocean of experiences. You know, they have had so many stories. They've had so many interactions in life. They've done so many things. And for them to be defined by a diagnosis at the end of their life is so disrespectful. We should never, ever define someone as demented or as, oh, an Alzheimer's patient. You know, no, they're, say, for example, Mary. This is Mary who has some memory problems. So kind of completely separating the person from the disease is one of the most prominent things that we do in clinics. Like don't define him or her as her symptoms. She's a person. Yeah, she may not have her memories intact, but she's done so many things. And it's important for us to highlight everything that she has done in the past. So that's why we're big fans of having albums and pictures in the room and videos of them dancing and singing and doing wonderful things when they were younger, their contribution to the society, to their family, and highlighting those stories over and over again, which is so important. It sounds like you two are dream doctors to have in this situation. And we were talking (laughs) with uh, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn uh, in our last season about the type of care that people can expect to receive on a regular basis and the difference between the type of care that he offers and what is um, common, especially in a practice where people want want their um, patients to be in and out for oftentimes billing purposes. Uh, And it's such an unfortunate unfortunate thing because love and care can take someone so far and having the right resources and support and teaching their family how to support them and counseling them through that. And I know that with the pressure that's on medical professionals, especially now more than ever, uh, it is a lot. But I can only imagine if everyone was like the two of you, how supported and cared for everyone would feel. That's very kind of you. you. Thank you. But it's also cost effective. I mean, right now what happens is um, the fam, let's say, take, let's take, and it's not just for this disease alone. Um, If we take a more holistic and that word has been used overused so much, like, uh, like every other, you know, uh, word, but uh, holistic approach, you actually, from a very cold cost effectiveness perspective, the families are supported, a conversation that takes 10 minutes, a, a support system that has some, some resources available. Uh, and, and what happens is they, they don't end up in nursing homes that cost tens of thousands of dollars yeah. in, in a very cold, uh, lonely in, uh, environment. But that, I'm not talking against, against nursing homes. I'm very much um, supportive of nursing homes in the right setting. But the way we approach it now is is very cold and 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 disconnected. But if we flip healthcare a little bit towards prevention, a little bit towards uh, support, it would be exponentially cost effective. Yeah. So uh, I think we have to start talking about this at the public policy side of things. That the answer is not always going to be the the uh, the you know with the pill. I'm, I'm unlike a lot of the you know lifestyle docs. We're not against pills and medications and science and all that. All of those are amazing and important. They're going to have incredible effect on our life. They've had incredible effect on our life. What we're saying is that at this point there needs to be a little bit more switch towards prevention and comprehensive support than just pills alone. It makes all the difference, right? If we can make yes. that switch, so much is healed and so much pain and suffering just disappears and never exists in our society. The magnitude of 
of this is really hard to wrap my brain around. Like it's so many people, it's such a big issue, but it's really empowering to know and to learn how much control that we do have, both on the end side of it, being there and supporting our loved ones. We can control that and finding out how to do that best is great. But learning that there's so much power and we have so much control and opportunity on the prevention side is very empowering. And we love to dive into that. You hinted a little bit about how in Loma Linda, the rates of dementia were so different. We actually chatted with Dan Butner earlier this season about blue zones. And I know that his research has impacted yours. Can you share a little bit about that blue zones, how that happened and, and how you take that into account in your work? Yeah, absolutely. So there are different places where people are quite healthier than other places. And there it's no more distinct and clear than in Loma Linda. And when when I was a fellow at uh, uh, UCSD, which was the number one neuroscience program at the time with uh, Dr. Thal, and uh, Aisha was doing incredible work with fMRIs, um, we were looking for a place to do uh, innovative new research on prevention. And lo and behold, um, Loma Linda was one of the actually the only blue zone in America. So we we I made a cold call to the president and said, you know, I have this uh, skill and. I would love to come and study. And uh, they, they were so welcoming. And when I was brought in, I became the director of brain health uh, um, and Alzheimer's prevention program. And uh, we started a clinic, collected data. And after five years, we had 3,000 something patients. And remember, in Loma Linda proper, the city, there's about 25,000 people or so uh, in there. And about a third are vegetarians and, and vegans and plant-based and health center. And the others are just regular population. And um, so the dementia patients would come to me. There aren't that many clinics in, in proximity. And, and the other thing is the Seventh-day Adventists, these are not Loma Linda that's healthier. The Seventh-day Adventists have a higher proclivity to come to Loma Linda because it's their own hospital. So if there's a bias, it would be a bias of, of coming to Loma Linda. So if there was dementias, it would be higher proclivity. So I would have a false positive, a higher number of dementia patients who had plant-based and vegan and all that. But um, after five years, we looked at the data and the nutrition and everything, and and guess how many, and you would expect one third of the 25,000, which are plant-based, you would expect one third of dementia patients to be plant-based, right? And out of 5,000, sorry, out of 3,000, guess how many were plant-based? 3%? No. Usually you would expect one third, but in this case, it was 19, not 19%, 19 individuals. Now, I know that that's an anecdotal data and an and, and anecdote of one, the coconut oil thing went viral. And I have an anecdote and a cross-sectional data of 3000. And we actually, in the book, n- noted it as such. As scientists, we have to be accurate and you know, kind of give the weight of the data. But that's remarkable that 19 were plant-based and, and most of them later in life. And they had all the issues as well, like arrhythmia and things of that nature. So that's a remarkable fact that can't be avoided. Um, and then we looked at the data itself in the Advent cell study, again, um, looking at 500 individuals uh, cross-sectionally, the, uh, the ones that were uh, vegan did better than the ones that were vegetarian, who did better than uh, pescatarian, who did better than omnivores. And, and, and then we looked at the other data outside and and same patterns appeared over and over and over and over again. So the data is pretty clear that I don't, you know, we're we we are very clear about our science versus our ethics. And and our we are vegans for environment and for animals. And so that's that's why, and as it happens, it's a healthy lifestyle, especially if planned well. Unplanned vegan is unhealthy. Unplanned anything is unhealthy. But planned well is very healthy. And, and we are very clear about the fact that, you know, fish, there's no data that fish is bad, um, especially small fish. And, and we don't eat it because of all those other reasons. And you can get that benefit from omega-3 from other sources. But so we're very clear and, and to distinguish this level of, uh, you know, um, uh, separation between science and where the science is. But the data is incredibly clear. So we are bewildered when on a huge show like uh, Joe Rogan or somewhere else, somebody comes up and 
spews out some anecdotal data like liver is good for you. I mean, where did that data come from? You have mountains of data from the mind diet to the Mediterranean diet. By the way, both of those, the part that was beneficial, and we did this research, we looked at it. Aisha won the, uh, the, was the youngest researcher award for American Heart Association on the Mediterranean diet. The part that's healthy is the plant-based component. So the data in Loma Linda, plus all this data was very, very clear that at least you should eat lots more plants. There was no question of that. Before going there, what were you thinking? And once you were there, how did that impact your work or change your work? And then also your personal lives. I imagine learning this data and studying it very thoroughly also impacts how you eat. Were you already eating vegetarian before you went there? Uh, we we were. We were eating vegetarian, but after the data, we became completely plant-based, um, 100%, but with, with uh, very mindful of certain things that not just plant-based people have lack, but anybody. I mean, I was the director of public health for an entire country uh, for two years, and 15% of the country was thyroid deficiency because of iodine, 15%. That's 15% of the population that have cognitive decline because of iodine deficiency. So I want people to recognize that you, no matter what you're doing, you have to be mindful of your diet. So um, yeah, we're, we've been completely 100% plant-based, and but mindful of vitamin B12 and omega and all of that. And we, initially, when we um, were in the field of neuroscience, Tony, um, you know, we both were involved in such great research and we had amazing mentors and I was doing a lot of neuroimaging and Dean was actually doing a lot of, you know, um, imaging studies and pathology studies, looking at, you know, brain cells and slides of, uh, of people with Lewy body dementia and Alzheimer's disease and trying to figure out what successful cognitive aging meant and looks like. So we were doing a lot of research and when we started reading about the impact of lifestyle, and remember back then, uh, the statement that came from bigger organizations like the American Academy of Neurology or Alzheimer's Association was that this is a dismal disease, there's no treatment for dementia, and uh, you know people would make fun of neurologists and say, all they do is dog- diagnose and adios. You know, they would just kind of put a label on someone. And then I remember when I was shadowing neurologists back then, this is before residency, we would have a stack of brochures from different um, nursing homes. And at the departure time, everybody would get like several handouts. This is the number that you call. These are the, uh, you know, the nursing homes that are available in your area. And it's important for you to talk to your family to get your, uh, you know, your uh, life in order because a time will come when you won't be able to make decisions for yourself. And this is for people who had some memory problems and not entirely dependent on their family. So it was that dismal and sad. Like, honestly, it was just an exercise of how well a neurologist could diagnose someone. Oh, did you figure that out? Like, was it Alzheimer's or was it Lewy body dementia? Did you miss that tremor? That was the focus. And it was just so bad and depressing. Um, And so we said, there's got to be something else. So we started reading a lot and we came up with great research from uh, different populations. There was a study called the Rancho Bernardo study in San Diego. And Dr. Elizabeth uh, Barrett Connor, she was this incredible scientist, such a powerhouse of a woman. She was actually looking at the impact of what people do as far as their lifestyle is concerned and their health, whether it's, it was cardiovascular health or bone health or menopausal health and things like that. So she kind of opened up my eyes and was like, oh, so the things that we eat do matter. They actually do have an impact. And that kind of opened up the concept of learning more about the impact of lifestyle on our health. And we read about uh, the the different studies that had been done. Uh, We read about the blue zones and Buettner's name came. And, you know, once you open that door, then you find out that this entire world existed that you didn't know about. And we're like, 
how is it even possible for us not to actually include all of this information in our medical curriculum? How is it that we were medical students and we were never told that what you eat has an impact on your bones and your heart and your health? And it has, it's got to have some effect on, on the brain as well, right? And so that's how we actually started looking into it. And there was nothing, like there was nothing as far as Alzheimer's prevention was concerned. And Dean and I, w- once you're in public health, you actually have a completely different perspective. You don't just look at medication and at uh, diagnosing people at that level. You actually want to look at the entire spectrum of their life, of what had happened to them that brought them to that point. So having a degree in public health and the master's degree actually really helped open up our minds and not be too myopic. And so that's how we went into it and started looking at lifestyle. I did a preventive medicine and a neurology residency combined because I wanted to look at the impact of lifestyle and prevention on neurological diseases. And what we found was astounding, like Dean said. Wow. Well, thank goodness for both of you really delving into this topic. I know change is really hard for people even when they know what to do, but there's also a lot of people out there that if they could just know, oh yeah, there's a good chance I could prevent myself from getting Alzheimer's and this is exactly what I need to do, they will jump in and do it. And you give that practical advice in your book, The 30 Days Alzheimer's Solution, and you just really break down the knowledge. So, I'd love for you to share a little bit about the practical how-to. What can and should people be doing if they want to optimize their brain health and, yeah, their overall well-being and and cognitive longevity over time? Absolutely. Um, so th- the th- the thing that we found early in our research was that one needs to address multiple things in their life to live a brain healthy life. You know, it's not just exercise. It's not just nutrition. It's, it's a, it's a comprehensive multifaceted approach to brain health. And we created an acronym, kind of a, you know, funny acronym neuro because we're neurologists, very self-serving, but we thought it would make sense for people to kind of have an acronym to understand the importance of these elements. And neuro stands for nutrition, exercise, unwind, or stress management. R is for restorative sleep. Sleep is so important. And then O is for optimizing cognitive activity, which means keeping your mind active with something that is challenging and complex throughout your life. Those are the elements that have been studied. Those are the elements that have been highlighted in people who live a very um, cognitively healthy life well, well into their 80s, 90s, and beyond. And um, practically, you know, as far as, say, for example, nutrition is concerned, when you look at the amount of data that we have spanning through decades, you kind of see that there is a essentially a variation of the same theme. And the same, the theme is eat plants eat vegetables, fruits, and things that grow from the ground. A plant-based diet is the most important and prominent factor, whether it's the Mediterranean diet or the MIND diet or the DASH diet or any other dietary pattern that has been studied and validated for different health outcomes. So eating fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts and seeds, legumes as a source of complex carbohydrates and plant proteins is so important and then avoiding, obviously, I think everybody knows, avoiding um, you know, processed foods, uh, but also avoiding saturated fats. And unfortunately, even though there's a lot of research on it, that saturated fat is unhealthy, you still hear, you know, people talking about the fact that it's good for you, butter is fine, and you know, eating saturated fat doesn't really end up in health problems. And that is not true. Saturated fat causes damage to our arteries and our heart and in our brains. Saturated fat causes inflammation in the brain. It has been associated with increased risk of Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia and Parkinson's disease. Saturated fat can actually cause some cellular changes. You know, even you hear people saying the brain is made out of fat, so you need a lot of fat. Uh, That is not true. The the fat that we need is omega-3 fatty acids. And we can get that from a plant-based diet and also um, for people who are prone to omega-3 deficiency, they can get it from algae-based sources. And so that's why in, in our books and in our work, we've been highlighting the importance of eating a whole food 
plant-based diet. But people can also stay healthy if they're not at that ideal level. A plant-predominant diet can actually be even better than the standard American diet. And because we work in communities that, you know, when people have different limitations, they might, there might be some food deserts or there might be some, um, some issues, some cultural problems, they can't really, you know, improve their diet. Every small incremental step of change towards that optimal goal is important and makes a huge difference. So even if people add a little bit of improvement to their diet, it benefits their brain. So that was nutrition. And as far as exercise is concerned, I think there's no, there's no um, fighting or any disagreement there. Exercise is incredibly important. It essentially grows the connections between our brain cells and a combination of aerobic and strength training has been shown to improve brain health. It actually literally grows the brain. It has been associated with the um, production of growth hormones that gives our brains an opportunity to continuously grow and thrive and improve our memories. Stress is an incredible risk factor for having dementia. People who have had stress throughout their life, especially early in life, and they don't have mechanisms of managing that stress can be at higher risk of developing dementia. And we have an entire course actually that focuses on stress management. There's good stress and there's bad stress. Good stress is the kind of stress that you put yourself in, like going to school or learning a new language or being connected to a community that pushes you to think and to be creative. Bad stress is the type of stress that has been imposed on you that you have no control over. And managing the good stress and increasing it and managing the bad stress and decreasing it is important. Our sleep Sleep is so important. Um, we've talked about sleep hygiene quite a bit on our podcast and in our book. People need to get at least seven to eight hours of sleep, deep restorative sleep that is not, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's uninterrupted. And sleep disorders like sleep apnea, restless leg syndrome can definitely decrease the quality of our sleep and increases the chances of having uh, dementia and, uh, you know, other kinds of uh, dementias as well, specifically Alzheimer's disease. Um, optimizing cognitive activity or keeping our minds active is such an important topic that has been ignored for a very long time. We now know that people who have complex lifestyles where you know, they run a podcast like you and Michelle. They have an Instagram uh, channel that they keep up with. They're creative. They come up with recipes. I'm just giving an example of you guys of how involved and connected you are. But you know, people who have jobs that they look forward to going to, that, you know, moms that have children to raise and have community to take care of, project managers, community leaders, um, faith-based group, whatever it is that keeps our minds active and increases the chance of communicating with each other, coming up with new beautiful ideas. There's a concept of idea density. People who have more ideas and are more creative are actually protected from Alzheimer's disease and other kinds of dementias. So I, I know that I kind of ran through all of the neuro concept, but these are some of the prominent things that make sure that we have a healthy brain and prevent uh, devastating diseases like Alzheimer's dementia. And a couple of other things, uh, very unpopular things I'm going to bring down. Uh, reducing significantly or eliminating alcohol, eliminating cigarette smoke. If you have hearing deficits, addressing that. These are also three very important elements as well. While I was listening, I thought about how I'm pretty bad at a lot of what you said. I don't drink and I don't smoke, <laughs> but I like to stress. Um, I I don't think I like it. I just tend to do that. Um, I have a hard time falling asleep because I'm usually running through things at night. And uh, and so I wanted to mention some of the things that are super easy that I've been doing to manage those things and to make it much easier. Um, I get really interested in my work. I love working. And Michelle and I were talking about this not too long ago, how you can wake up and then you can go to your computer and then before you know it, the end of the day is here. And you're like, what happened? Because you, you're enjoying it so much. But I started wearing a Fitbit and it tells me every hour, all right, time for you to move, get up, walk around, 250 yeah. steps. Uh, and so that reminds me that I want to walk on my treadmill. So I start, I got this little tiny treadmill that I got on Amazon, I think it was $2.99 or something like that. And I'm taking all of my calls 
walking on the treadmill. And I also (laughs) am trying to associate watching television with walking on the treadmill. So when I do want to turn my like work off for a moment and watch a show, I do it on the treadmill. So I'm at least getting my steps in. And then the other thing is that I, I, I am a Kaiser patient. So they give you a free subscription to the Calm app. And it's been so helpful to do nighttime meditation, sleep meditations and to control your breathing, to listen to someone talk and give you actionable items that seem like your mind is working, but it ends up putting me to sleep really super fast. And it also makes me stop thinking about the stressors of the day and focus on the gratitudes. I do a lot of sleep um, gratitude meditations and just switching things, turning my brain or like shifting my brain to, to be grateful and, and, Instead of thinking, oh, I should have done that better. I could have done this. I sh- like shoulda, coulda, woulda. Um, really, also makes me makes me sleep better. Uh, and then lastly, we talk about this all the time, which is meal planning, and that's why I'm really excited about your book because I cannot wait to dive into all of these recipes. But having healthy food makes a huge difference when it's already prepped and when I'm running late somewhere and I need a quick bite to eat, I don't stop at Chipotle. I stop at the refrigerator and grab the quinoa dish that I prepped or um, something that's already healthy. So I've been trying to prep like three things per day. I'm sorry, per week uh, that are in big batches that my husband and I can quickly grab when we are short on time. And all of those things together have made me feel so much better. And these practices have been in place probably over the past few months, maybe throughout the summer. And my overall general wellness, especially with my mental health, has been very positive. And they all seem like minor changes, but together, I feel great. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. that's remarkable. That's, that's exactly what we're talking about when we, when we talk about behavior change, small incremental changes. We're learning that this this serotonin model of depression and anxiety and the dopamine is not the right one. What we're doing is we we're bluntly moving these chemicals and hoping for them to settle. And and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, the, the data is that they work a little better than average, so that's fine. Those are good, but emotions are a ship, a ship that's been put in in a direction through life through neurochemistry, some genetics, some environmental factors, different kinds of things that have set you, and the language that you've actually inculcated throughout your life. And that language starts very early in life without us knowing some negative language and how you, uh, how you use language in your head. How you change that direction is in small tugboats, these little small t- dopamine tugboats of like you just said, small increments of exercise. Amazing. Those little bursts of dopamine are little tugboats directing directing your emotions, your mood, your empowerment, everything in one direction. Um, how you eat from moment to moment, not the eating itself alone. Of course, that's great. Anti-inflammatory versus pro-inflammatory, anti-coagulation versus uh, all of that stuff. But, uh, but more importantly, the fact that you have control over one of the most important things in your life, your food, gives you a positive sense every time you are satiated, yet at the same time empowered, you have control over it. That's a tugboat. The other is the language that we have. You know, the, the uh, Saturday Night Live had this uh, skit where, uh, I forgot who the actor was, that would get in front of the mirror and do these self um, uh, actual, uh, actualization statements. I am great. I'm beautiful. I'm this and that. Okay. That's a, that's a funny version, but, but the reality is the language we use on how we interpret any moment matters. This comes to us from the word of world of sports, the same emotion of anxiety versus challenge are the same physiological phenomenon. Your hands got, gets a little sweaty. Maybe you're aware of it. Maybe you're not. Your heart starts beating fast. Your breathing gets faster, your pupils constrict, uh, lots of other things. They're the same. The person that feels like this is a challenge has the language that actually flips that anxiety language over time to one of challenge. Now, I'm not trying to diminish anxiety. It's a real thing. It's a devastating thing. Uh, I've written a whole lot about it. 
Um, but but I want to make sure that people understand besides medication, which is effective, there are things you can do in small increments that changes your control over those emotional factors, changes the general direction as you described it beautifully. And, and that's what we do in our, in our uh, clinics, in our uh, program, the Neuroacademy uh, program, and the communities through our non-for-profit Healthy Minds Initiative. It's all about this, the small incremental, incremental steps of empowerment. Um, uh, you're living it. Thank you. I, and I wanted to mention one other thing that you all talk about that I am trying to make an effort to do. And I think that as an introvert, maybe other introverts who are listening can resonate with this. It's very easy to not be social. Um, for me, <laughs> the, the pandemic was not hard socially uh, because I thrived at home in my garden with my husband and my dog. And I, it can be very, um, yeah, it just can. It can be easy for me to stay home for too long and not go out and experience the sunshine and social communication. And um, and so something I am prioritizing is every Friday going swing dancing. I, I'm a long time. I've been swing dancing for 10 years. And during the pandemic, I stopped completely. <clears throat> but I forgot how much joy it brought me and how much stress relief being around my friends and m moving together uh, was for me. And so that is something that you all have talked about in your research, the the, the component of community. And and I'm trying every single Friday. <laughs> I'm on a streak for like multiple months now to get out of my house and socialize and feel the reminder of what that kind of socialization can do for my mental health. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very important for us to kind of uh, live in that discomfort. Um, you know, uh, it, it, sometimes the most growth in our brain occurs when we make ourselves uncomfortable. Of course, that has a limitation to it, but it's that those moments of challenging yourself to get out of the safe zone and put yourself in the growth zone is when you literally have more neurons firing in your brain, when you literally have more connections being made and your brain morphing into a more expanded version of itself. So it's really important to put yourself in those situations. That's actually the whole point of positive stress. Positive stress, without positive stress, your brain doesn't grow. So it's a positive stress is pushing yourself and discomfort, but around your purpose, around goals that you've set. And, and that is when the brain is actually, like Aisha said it beautifully, just fires like crazy and actually makes the connections necessary in the axons by the, by the billions, by the way, billions of connections because of the discomfort that you've placed yourself around your purpose. I am inspired to continue doing it because even though it's really hard to get out, I do feel better. And I'm hoping that it helps my long-term brain health. Okay, so we're running short on time. I have loved talking to you so much, but we want to hit some things that you talk about in your latest book. And something that was fascinating to both Michelle and I were the the Neuro9 foods for improving cognitive health. Will you please share those? <clears throat> Sure. Uh, so the, you know, the Neuro9 uh, came from looking at different dietary patterns, especially the MIND diet and the Mediterranean diet. And I'm, I'm, I'm bringing up those dietary patterns because in uh, nutrition, in nutritional research, uh, we're not looking at specific foods anymore. We're looking at dietary patterns because people don't eat one food at a time. They eat multiple foods. Uh, and it's the interaction and the synergy and the pattern that matters more than specific foods. However, to provide guidance for people to include certain foods, it was important for us to uh, find evidence-based information on what's good and what's not. So Dean and I came up with the Neuro9 from these dietary patterns, and there are some factor analyses that were done looking at specific foods that stand out. So this is this is the the, the list. The Neuro9 consists of greens, 
obviously for obvious reasons. They're so they're so good for you. There have been multiple studies that show that when people even have you know one serving of green per day, their their brains was were 11 years younger and they protected themselves from dementia because of the different components, whether it's phytochemicals and polyphenols and flavanols and things of that nature that help fight inflammation and oxidative damage to the brain. Then we have beans or lentils like chickpeas, kidney beans and things of that nature. Why? Because they have so much fiber and they have great sources of plant proteins. And we know that when you replace animal proteins, with plant proteins, you have better cardiovascular health. Um, you know, th- there's less mortality when people eat more beans and lentils, and it's great for our uh, arterial system and the brain as well. Berries, specifically like strawberries and blueberries, have been studied. And when people include blueberries in their diet, they have lower risk of Alzheimer's dementia. Nuts and seeds, because they have amazing sources of good fats poly and monounsaturated fats. And when you eat nuts and nut butters, you actually have a higher chance of reducing your saturated fat intake from butter and other animal sources. Seeds as well, um, specifically things like chia seeds and flax seeds are great sources of alpha linoleic acid, which gets converted to DHA and EPA, um, and also because of their healthy fats. Herbs and spices, because pound for pound, they're the most anti-inflammatory foods around. Uh, Things like turmeric have been studied, and they may have some anti-amyloid properties. Amyloid is a protein that is associated with Alzheimer's disease, so we're learning more about it. But any herb and spice is great because they're so delicious. They reduce your need of adding salt and sugar to your food, and they're also anti-inflammatory. Then, oh my goodness, I'm using my memory. Then we have cruciferous vegetables like broccoli and cauliflower and cabbage because they have specific compounds that fight against inflammation. Broccoli has sulforaphane that you know has been associated with its potent antioxidant, anti-inflammatory properties. And people who eat cruciferous vegetables have better cardiovascular health profile and better brain health. Then um, whole grains, um, you know, Poor whole grains. Grains have been vilified so much by so many people on the internet and, and social media, but whole grains are amazing. Um, things like oats and quinoa and brown rice and barley. Uh, they have so much fiber that you know protects our gut microbiome. And if you have a healthy gut, you have a healthy brain. Um, you, it also provides such complex carbohydrates and protein and other mi- minerals that help us stay healthy and sharp. And then the last one is tea. You know, there's so much information and new research on green tea and black tea being good for you. Again, it's probably because of some of the compounds, the polyphenols like EGCG and green tea, protecting our brain health from inflammatory changes. And when people drink, you know, a cup or two of green tea per day, they have longer lives and better cardiovascular health profiles. So that's it. I think I got all of them, didn't I? So greens, beans, berries, nuts, seeds, Herbs and spices, cruciferous vegetables, whole grains, and tea. Those are the Neuro9. Amazing. We will include the Neuro9 list on the show notes over at plantpoweredpodcast.com. But I definitely encourage all of you listening to pick up the 30-day Alzheimer solution. All this information is in there. It is just packed with knowledge and practical tips on how to actually make change that works and that lasts, um, as well as um, amazing recipes that you've put together. So we will link your book as well. I personally am itching to go eat some greens and beans and go on a run. It has been way too long. I'm just, I feel really excited. I I don't feel overwhelmed, even though there's a million things that I'm not doing optimally. I just feel like I'm taking the approach of this is an exciting challenge to move in a better direction of. And I hope those listening are feeling the same. Where else can people find you, connect with you? And do you have any last words you'd love to share with our audience? Thank you so much, Michelle. Uh, we're very uh, we're very excited to be here. We are the Brain Docs on Instagram. That's our Instagram handle, the Brain Docs. Wanted to make it easy so people could understand. Uh, we're the braindocs.com as far as our website is concerned. Um, I, we would love for people to check out our Healthy Minds Initiative. So at Healthy Minds Initiative, it's our non-for-profit and uh, most of our work that is being done goes towards the Healthy Minds Initiative, empowering communities to take care of their brain health because it's in those incremental steps of change that uh, people make a huge difference. And then we have a community 
community called the Neuro Academy, which is a platform where we um, connect with people um, on a regular basis. Um, we have, uh, you know, moderators and a very empowered community who on a regular basis gets together and improves their lifestyle towards better brain health. In the Neuro Academy, we have courses at the, for the same inclusion. It's multiple courses, um, as much as eight to uh, 10 uh, credits of CE, CME, if people wanted their certification, including a coaching course that's coming out, the neuro coaching course that's coming out for, fairly soon. And using these venues, we want to actually empower people not to just learn about what's healthy, but also teach themselves, coach themselves and coach their family members um, uh, when it comes to behavior change, which is our uh, our passion. And also we have a podcast called the Brain Health Revolution for people who, you know, people learn, get information in different ways. Mm -hmm. and they're, they're, they're comfortable more listening to the information than all of this is available at the Brain Health Revolution podcast. Phenomenal. Thank you both for all you do to both improve lives, change lives, save lives, and do so much for the world. Um, we're so honored to have had you on the podcast and we'll share this for years to come. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having much us. Love. Thank Great you so speaking much. with you guys. A quick reminder before we go to check out our sponsors of this episode, Caraway and Organifi. You can find Caraway at carawayhome.com slash plantpoweredkitchen. And you can use that code plantpoweredkitchen to get 10% off your next purchase. And Organifi, which is spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I. You can find them at organifi.com slash plantpower and use that code plantpower to get 20% off your order. I started off the episode saying they were highly accomplished and I was totally serious about that. We didn't even cover half of the amazing things that they've done. I hope that one day we can talk to them again because I am feeling really inspired. I feel like they've taught us so much without overloading us with medical jargon and making us feel overwhelmed. I'm, I'm ready, Michelle. What about you? Yeah, definitely. I really feel intrigued and inspired to dive a little bit deeper. This is something that so many people just expect may happen and is out of their control, both dementia or more specifically Alzheimer's, and that we have so much control over prevention is really empowering. I want to dive deeper. I hope we can bring them back one day, but this was already so great. And yeah, I can't wait to finish reading their book and start making some of their recipes. So this was really fun. Thank you for joining us and listening to the episode today. If you want to see our other episodes, be sure to subscribe and check out the show notes where we're going to link everything at plantpoweredpodcast.com. We also have a Patreon. If you'd like to support the Plant Powered People podcast, that would mean the world to us. With as little as a few dollars a month, you can support this show and be a part of our Patreon community at patreon.com slash plantpoweredpeople. Thank you all so much for listening. We're wishing you lots of health, happiness, longevity for you and your loved ones. And we will talk to you in the next episode. <laughs>